Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hi, I'm Mark Kate. Welcome to episode 43 of Why We Listen. Right up front, this is not actually an episode of Why We Listen. On Sunday, April 23rd of this year, I led a panel discussion as part of the Don Buchla Memorial Concerts. The panel consisted of Roger Lynn, Dave Smith, Keith McMillan, Tom Oberheim, and Jessica Rylan. It was a chance to reminisce and memorialize the legendary electronic instrument designer and pioneer Don Buchla. It was a little myth-making, a little myth-dispelling. I was deeply honored to take part and to have a chance to meet and talk with these other titans of the field. A note to my regular listeners, and somewhat of an apology, this is a recording of a panel that assumes eh, quite a bit of specialized knowledge about the history of synthesis, synthesizer design, and so on. But if you can hang with the odd moment of engineering humor, it's really revelatory about a man and his designs and the inspirations he gave to those around him. Thanks very much to Not Human of Recombinant Media Labs, everyone at Gray Area where the concerts and the panel took place, Ezra Bukla, and Gita Dayal for asking me to moderate in the first place, and of course, all of the panelists. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming on a very nice sunny afternoon in San Francisco. Really quick, I'm kind of curious. Can everybody raise their hand who currently or have previously owned an instrument designed or manufactured by someone on this stage right now? That'll make introductions super easy. So um, let's start here with Jessica Ryland, who is from Flower Electronics and performs solo as Kent. And then we have Keith McMillan, who uh, originally of Zeta Music, now of Keith McMillan Instruments, famous for things such as uh, the Cabo and the K-Mix and the uh, Cuneo. Am I pronouncing Cuneo correctly? Excellent. And then uh, we have Roger Lynn from Lynn Electronics, as we know from Lindrum, and uh, worked for Akai, helped develop the early MPCs, now working on the Linstrument. <coughs> And then Dave Smith uh, founded Sequential Circuits, worked for Yamaha, developed the MIDI protocol, and now runs Dave Smith Instruments. And we have Tom Oberheim of Oberheim Electronics, uh, developed the first polyphonic synth, DMX, the SEM, and created the first commercially available phase shifter. So everybody on the stage has a lot of legacy attached to their names um, as engineers and artists and entrepreneurs. But I um, want to keep this fairly conversational, and I feel like this is just small enough, a crowd, that maybe if someone's dying to ask a question midstream rather than, you know, packing a Q&A at the end, just wave your arm frantically and, and we can bring it in. But mostly we'd like to talk about uh, Don Buchla, of course, and how he influenced design and art and instruments and the lives of everybody on the stage. So I'm going to start maybe with a very obvious sort of question cue, which is, if we can go down the line and just say, like, the first time you met Don or his, any of his instruments, what was your first interaction with him or his designs? Jessica. Um, so the first time I met Don, I think, was uh, 2007. 
Um, I had met Ezra the year before, and Ezra was like, oh, by the way, my dad is Don. And I was like, what? And I was like really excited, because uh, I'd had an earlier interaction with Don's instruments uh, at Harvard when I was doing some work for the electronic music studio over there. And um, so Ezra dragged Don to one of my shows, and uh, Don kind of skulked in the corner and then left. I don't know if he liked it or not, but um, I got to meet him you know, the next day, and I, I was pretty excited about that. I met Don in 79. He invited me to a party, the premiere of the Touche, and um, it was on Arch Street, and Charles R. McConian was broadcasting it on KPFA, and David Rosenboom was the performer. And anyone who knows Don, he is definitely anti-order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he did everything he could to frustrate Charles. It was pretty well orchestrated, in all honesty. I remember going home, turning on the radio, and hearing Charles in a nasty tone of voice saying, well, Don may be an incredible instrument designer, but he's a horrible host. And so I think Don accomplished what he was after. Well, I don't remember when I first met Don, but I got to know him better. Uh, we had this little breakfast club that we called the, uh, the Dead President Society. Uh, and this because many of us were uh, members of companies that had died. We were, we were presidents of companies that had died, Dave and Tom and I. And Keith. Not, I don't think you actually had a dead company, did you? No. <clears throat> so... Well, but at any rate, uh, Don would come in, and uh, Don was a man of few words. He was actually a man of few syllables. <laughs> you were lucky to get one or two syllables out of a guy. But um, if you could get him to open up, which was usually some sort of a combination of someone very interested or alcohol or both, uh, he could then uh, just talk uh, for quite a while. So there was a lot to say there, but... Um, he was a gentleman. I always saw him as a um, uh, just kind of a grown-up nerd. You know, he really liked what he did, uh, but was maybe not the most socially comfortable person. And so he liked to be quiet. Uh, but in the right moments, he would open up very nicely. And, and those moments I cherished. Uh, I also don't remember the exact first date when I met him, but I think it was probably either late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and I think it was at a keyboard magazine function of some sort. Keyboard magazine was down in uh, Cupertino at the time, and Sequential Circus was in San Jose, and uh, Don wasn't too far away, and so he, he was down there. That, I think, was the first time I met him, but since he was up here and I was down there, and uh, we didn't get together that often, except, you know, yearly here or there. But, uh, yeah, known him, uh, hadn't known him for a long time, I guess. I first met Don at a gathering of many synthesizer developers in Bourges, France in the summer of 1990. Uh, I didn't know Don before that because in those days I lived in Los Angeles area and so I didn't have contact with um, uh, a lot of electronic music people like I do have since after my wife and I moved up here in late 1990. But there's one one thing in my life that Don's responsible for, uh, long before I decided to build synthesizers myself, uh, unlike many people who first heard their synthesizer uh, thing through, through switched on Bach, I, 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 I didn't relate to that, but I heard Silver Apples of the Moon in that um, 
was a big change. And of course, that's uh, not Don's music, but it's his equipment. So that, that was an important event for me. You all talked a bit about meeting Don, but what about his instruments? What were your first experiences? I, I almost want to say, like, were confronted by his instruments, or what was the first time you got your hands on them, and what did you discover? Well, I can say that um, I, I didn't really uh, um, become too familiar with Don's instruments because um, his style, what he was doing with them, was very different than, for example, what Bob Moog was doing. Bob Moog um, was focused more on notes and, and music, and I think Don had more of a focus on self-generating algorithmic music, sounds, music that wasn't necessarily based on the uh, uh, chromatic scale. And so I always have been a fan of notes and chords and things like that, so I didn't uh, use his stuff as much. But what I find very interesting now is that, uh, particularly with this Eurorack movement, it's really followed more of Don's design ideas than Bob Moog's. Uh, you know, you will find at some of these events for Eurorec, nary a keyboard, you'll find lots of touch plates, which were something that Don originally used. And uh, a lot of these um, modules follow um, uh, some of Don's early ideas. So he really uh, was well ahead of the curve on some of those things. Uh, he... he um, his early sense really allowed you to do a lot with the sound source. It wasn't just uh, pulse and sawtooth and sign and things like that. It really allowed you to, to craft that. And it was more, uh, it wasn't just about uh, the sound source when you play a key. It was about um, many other things. And, and he always had a wonderful way of naming things. I loved the, the source of uncertainty. Yeah, that was marvelous. So um, I got to know his stuff later and got to appreciate it. Um, as I got to know him better and to see how it, it fit into um, uh, not just sound but in, in, into composition and, and ideas of music. Don and I live fairly close to each other in Berkeley so we would hang out a lot and when he was uh, premiering the 700 he did not want to use a keyboard. Again, highly nonconformist. And uh, I started uh, Zeta Music and Zeta Violins, and we got together, and one of the people in the Bay Area who played violin, um, we interfaced it with the uh, 700, which was his first product that he begrudgingly put MIDI in. And when he did do it, he put in two of them, two inputs, um, I believe. And, uh, yeah, so we spent time together setting up patches uh, for the premiere, which went actually a lot more smoothly than the previous one. Um, and then I worked closely with Don on Thunder. I wrote the manual and spent a lot of time drinking and talking over ideas. And Don was a wonderful listener. And... About a week later, he would usually come up with an idea that was discussed a week before, and it was fine. Uh, he integrated a lot of people's ideas into his uh, instruments, but it was always, it was like on, an honor to have him take your, your concepts and put them into a product 
uh, that has limited memory and limited display capabilities. So uh, he was pretty discerning. You really needed to make a case for it. And, um, you know, once he saw the reason for it, he made it his own. And uh, it was great fun. We did that again on Lightning. And uh, we bonded because we were both uh, makers of controllers, alternate controllers. And there aren't a whole lot of us around, so it was really, uh, I think, important for both of us to have someone to speak with and bounce ideas off of. And that was really how we became very close. Um, a couple of the experiences I had before I, uh, years before I met Don, um, but left an impression to this day about um, his work. Uh, I got started in electronic music equipment making in around 1969, 1970. For the first three or four years, five years, I was making uh, effects boxes. And um, they're pretty, pretty textbook uh, stuff, ring modulator, phase shifter, pretty much uh, right out of an engineering tech, uh, textbook, pretty much. But I, we, uh, this back in my company was down in Santa Monica, and somebody brought in a, a box that Don designed that was a delay unit that used bucket brigades. In the really early days, uh, I didn't know of any other product um, we were amazed that there's something that's such, this is the day before microprocess, before digital audio, and, we, and I was really impressed with that. And another thing um, that left an impression on me with his uh, amazing skill at uh, circuit design was I did get started in the uh, synth business in 1974 by bringing out a, a little synth module I call the synthesizer expander module, and it was only partially voltage controlled. The easy part was to voltage control the VCOs and the, and the VCF, but the envelope generators were not <coughs> voltage controlled. And uh, somewhere along the line, uh, in that, you know, 74, 75, 76, I didn't see the circuitry, but I had a one-hour discussion with the, the utility of voltage-controlled envelope generators at the AS show in New York with Suzanne Chani. Uh, I had listened to her for one hour telling me how great uh, voltage-controlled envelope generators. I had no idea how to make a voltage-controlled envelope generator. Yeah, I had a number of discussions over the years with Don. It seemed like every few years he'd have some idea for a new instrument or he'd want to get one of his instruments into bigger production and we'd talk about it for a little while and for whatever reason it never seemed to go anywhere. Uh, it's like he, he wanted to do it but maybe not really. Uh, and I think this was during, maybe towards the end of sequential days, but maybe even into the Yamaha and, uh, you know, when I started, started Korg R&D in the, in 1989, something like that. Uh, but it, it was always interesting because, you know, a lot of the instruments he did end up building and, and selling a few of them, but, uh, for some reason it just, uh, never went beyond that. I mean, he, he did something with CBS at one point too, right? Yeah, way back. So there was always the attempt to, uh, go further, but not really. So do you think that was about 
having too short an attention span to, to get an idea and just hammer it away until it becomes a business? Or why do you think that uh, he had so many ideas that ran for these short times? Don didn't have a business bone in his body. Um, <laughs> and as I mentioned earlier, he had a real uh, built-in disregard for anything structured or organized. Um, That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> he and I collaborated, but mostly as equals, and I helped him sell thunders and lightnings and um, tried to advise him on business items, but he would just go dark whenever any of that came up. So he was his own uh, worst enemy on that front. And I think he needed to have that, um, I won't call it anxiety, but uh, lack of certainty in what he was doing as well as, uh, as a module. And if he was involved with a larger organization, which pretty much everyone of his endeavors were like that, uh, he um, would frustrate people. And, but I think that was required for him to have this, uh, what would you call it, this divine discontent with everything. And it made him always want to go on to the next thing because this current thing was all screwed up. <laughs> well, I might add something to that. <clears throat> I think Don, uh, we came of age in the 60s, or actually probably a little before the 60s, but this is a guy that used to hang out with the people on the magic bus, uh, the merry pranksters, and, and he did the sound system for a lot of the acid tests in, in San Francisco in the 60s. <clears throat> and so he was counterculture at his core. And so the whole idea of him making an agreement with an established company, as he did once with CBS and then with others, was kind of like, uh, you know, a Faustian bargain. And he would, he would, um, I think he, he wanted the power, uh, but it was an internal conflict because the idea of working with these evil people was just uh, uh, crushing to him. And um, he didn't have any uh, idea of how you would work with companies. Uh, he had no idea about schedules because, of course, schedules were just things that kept you from being creative. Budgets, things like that. You, it's silly. You can't hold me to a budget. It takes as long and as much money as it takes to make it. And that was his attitude. He honestly believed that. And, and uh, uh, in a sense, I respect him for that. You know, he was, uh, was counterculture. Maybe sticking on that moment in time, what do you think it is about the Bay Area that births so much of that? I mean, it, the, the, the 60s moment, the psychedelic moment, which was definitely what so much of his work was infused with. What do you think it is about this place that breeds that? I mean, you, you're all definitely connected to it as well, but he seemed to be like right at that sweet spot, right? The weather. Thanks. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, the science writer for the New York Times, John Markov, had a book called um, What the Dormouse Said. And it was about, in, in large part, uh, this, uh, what, what created this explosion of creativity uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of it was because this was the, the source of the hippie movement. And there were a core there of people uh, that really uh, were, uh, had great ideas, and most notable of which is Stuart Brand, who today is, is on a monthly basis doing talks with true idea creators uh, for very, very little money. He has the Long Now Foundation. Who, who goes to any of the Long Now lectures? Isn't that marvelous? <clears throat> and I think that's a true expression of 
of the creativity that exists here that was, uh, I think, engendered by the core of the people that created that, um, that culture. Um, and a lot of the people who got together at, at Kepler's Books in Palo, uh, at Menlo Park, um, when Wozniak showed his first uh, uh, Apple One computer board and things like that, they, they weren't trying to make money. Of course, he had a partner that was, uh, that was out for that. <clears throat> but uh, they were there to uh, give away knowledge and to, uh, to, they were there to save the world. And I think there's still a lot of it there. I can't remember the, um, it was uh, Elon Musk, uh, it was quoted, it was about a year ago, and he had uh, just seen a screening of um, that uh, comedy show, Silicon Valley. Uh, and his comment was, it's very nice, but it doesn't quite capture what Silicon Valley is really about. If you want to find out what Silicon Valley is really about, go to Burning Man. Uh, I've never been. I always wanted to go to Forest Man or Beach Man, you know, it would have been more fun. Uh, the, the sand up the butt thing just doesn't appeal to me. <clears throat> but, uh, but anyway, I think there is still uh, a set of ideals here that drives people a lot. And it's, it's, I think it's moved more from ideas to commerce, certainly, but um, it's, uh, it, it was certainly at the core of, I think, of, of what uh, created the, a lot of the new ideas that came out of Silicon Valley. And I suspect all of us responded to, even though I was down in LA, you guys were all new in California. Well, no, Tom and I are both LA expats, <clears throat> but that, we were drawn here maybe for that reason. Yeah, a lot of point, people point to the fact that Stanford University and Cal are up here as kind of center points, and then when the whole Silicon Valley thing started, like, when did it technically start? Like 1970-ish? I remember. Yeah, because yeah, because I, I that's when I got out of I graduated from Berkeley and started working in what was starting to become Silicon Valley. But back then, nobody wanted to hire engineers quite yet. Uh, but yeah, it's. Once that started up, if things and the weather, uh, it, it perfect storm, and and having a cool city like San Francisco doesn't doesn't hurt. You can pretty much find whatever you want within an hour's drive, and um, I don't know. I've traveled a lot, and it's still in my mind the best place to be. And, and the home prices are so low. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, so I'm from the East Coast, and I do live here now. Um, I'm kind of stuck here in some senses <laughs> uh, due to uh, getting married to someone from here. But so I might have a little different perspective, I think. Um, uh, I'm still not sure if I like it out here, and there does seem to be a sort of, I wouldn't call it an undercurrent, it's an overcurrent of sort of sociopathy, uh, especially down... Uh, in Silicon Valley where I live now, um, which I imagine is a very different place now than it was 20 years ago. But I think for me, what I always latch onto with Don is, um, you know, he would tell me about, uh, you know, doing the sound system for the acid test and some of this stuff. But I really, um, one time Ezra told me like, oh yeah, Don was the sound man at Altamont. And that really like struck a chord with me, maybe because of the sort of, uh, I, I don't know how to express it, but from, uh, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of hardcore music and there were a lot of fights at those shows. And so uh, this kind of more, uh, something about Altamont, I guess uh, I related to a little bit more. Um, and I don't know what that even means because there was an interview with some, some guy a while ago on NPR that I heard where he was sort of uh, rhapsodizing about Altamont as being this great thing. And it's like, actually, it was pretty terrible. There was a murder at the show. But that part of Don's personality of him being this sort of like antisocial, rugged individualist, I think was definitely part of his issues with the 
business world, right? And with CBS and his problems with that. But it was also very important, I think, to him personally as his sense of self, you know, and I remember one of the last times I talked to him, he was telling me a story about going horseback riding and his finger got caught in the reins and it broke off and it was hanging by a, a tendon, you know, and he's kind of like bragging about this and laughing, like, you know, it was kind of fun. And he probably did actually enjoy it in some way. He was, you know, he was, he was a tough person. Um, but he was also really sensitive in other ways. And uh, I think one other, the, the sort of other side of Don that I remember so clearly is the first time I came to Berkeley, um, falling asleep at night one night and the wind was blowing and it was like rising and lowering and it was going in and out just like the source of uncertainty. And I was like, oh my God, how did he do that? Like, I wish I could do that, you know? And so he was definitely really tuned into some stuff like that also. Don's pulse was arrhythmic and he would regularly have to go into the hospital and get it reset. And it's uh, peculiar, because he really does have a great sense of timing. He was the official timekeeper for the Winter Olympics when it was in Squaw Valley. And um, <laughs> seriously, he had a big clock in his bathroom in his, the basement, um, which had a, like a sweep secondhand, and he designed all of these devices that could tell when someone passed the finish line. Uh, he, among many of his talents, was optics. And uh, he designed uh, the caneless cane. When LEDs first came out, it was a device uh, for blind people, and it would make sounds to tell them it was like sonar. And uh, he continued to you know, amaze people. Uh, and it's interesting playing music with him because there's only one speed at which he can keep a regular beat, and that's when he's playing as fast as he humanly can. So there's this frenetic, freneticness in uh, his music and playing with him, uh, which I've had the fun to do a bunch of times. So yeah, he, he's basically arrhythmic. <laughs> Well, I think it's really interesting that, oh, no, this can wait. Yeah. In relation to Don does anybody up there remember the word wimp? I absolutely do. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Elaborate. Yeah. Well, sort of during wide-band inter-processor, er, inter-musical processor, it was a one megabit per second serial standard. And after Dave uh, got MIDI standardized, um, Don did not want to have anything to do with it for a while, so he put forth WIMP. Wide band instrument musical protocol. Very good. <laughs> Very good. WIMP isn't MIDI protocol. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, should we change the subject really quickly or keep going on that line? <laughs> yeah, I add something. Uh, the fellow who just asked that question is Mark Vale, who's been a wonderful writer in magazines and has a few books to his credit. And Mark was uh, uh, moderating a um, panel discussion that many of us were on at an AES show, Audio Engineering Society show. It must have been 10 years ago. 
And uh, Don was on the panel, and um, this is an example of Don the contrarian. Well, Mark started off the questioning uh, with a question. It was a long question. It was basically a yes or no question. But it's the sort of thing where you say, well, yes, yeah, an interesting point. Uh, the answer might be yes, but uh, you know, there's some sort of a nuanced answer. So Mark takes about a minute to ask this wonderful question, and then Don sits there says, no. <laughs> So um, it seems that a lot of what you guys are saying is um, when you're describing Don and his instruments, you're using a lot of the same words. It seems like he's sort of, I never met him, but it sounds like you're describing both the person and the instruments and the designs. Yeah. Um, and Roger, you, were, you, you brought up Moog earlier, and it seems to me as a non-designer that in the history, in the legacy of electronic music design, you almost have to confront the Moog versus the Buchla, the, the order versus the disorder, the, yes. the East versus West. I mean, that's how it seems to me. Is that how it seems to you guys? Well, I would say that's true. I think... Um, or is that just an easy framework to throw it all into? Well, I, um, it's a I guess little I too convenient. Okay. It's, it, it's too convenient, and people have really latched on to that, I think, but I think it's actually almost more reflective of business practices, right? Because I think Bob was a consummate businessman, and he was like, the keyboard is... is no, no, no. In some ways. So, Bob was almost as bad as Don. He, I know that he lost the rights to his own name for, I think, at least twice during his career, but he did sell a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a lot more Moogs around, you know, whereas Don's instruments were very rare, and I think that's something I didn't appreciate, like, with the Buchla 100 system at Harvard, I mean, how many did he make? Like, nine? You know, it was, like, very small scale. Or the music easel is another example. And definitely, I mean, if you look at the... And Bob definitely had business issues himself, but if you look at his pricing, you know, like, once um, some of those late 60s rec synthesizer records came out, he quadrupled the price of his filter. So it was, like, he at least was trying to, like, ride that market, which I think Don would have been, like, I don't care, but I defer. Yeah, Don didn't sell things for cheap. Yeah. No, they were not cheap. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing was, is people usually point to is one person added a black and white and the other one didn't. And it might have been that simple. If you want a lot of people to play an instrument, give them something that they're used to playing. And uh, you know, that, it's, that's simplifying it too. But uh, that was, I think, a major part of it. Well, my impression is I think they bo both were guided by a similar principle. They were making things that they felt, honestly, were the right things to be made. And I think Bob's interest was more about making something for playing notes. And uh, Don just looked at music and said, let's, <clears throat> let's create something completely different. Yeah. Let's make something that could make a different type of music. Bob was market-driven in a lot of ways. He'd listen to people. Don would never listen to anyone. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> he would listen to people, and then he would do the opposite of what they say. However, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. No, please. Uh, I've personally had kind of a different uh, point of view on the Buchla Moog uh, discussion. I, I got into synthesizers, you know, 10, 12 years after Don did and 8 or 10 years after <coughs> Bob Moog did and I came from a very much a computer background. I wasn't a musician really and to me it was 
two people doing the same thing a little different way, and both ways were valid. Um, both both people made VCOs, VCFs, VCAs, envelope generators, and to me it was just a a new way of making music, and I appreciated. Uh, I won't say equally, but I appreciated both both camps, if that's what would be the word, and was amazed at all of it. It was just, uh, uh, I never really thought a lot about it. I, I, knew, um, I knew Bob a little better than I knew Don because I'd had, uh, uh, I saw Bob every NAMM show. Uh, he had business problems. Uh, Don, I don't know the facts there, but I was just, uh, in, as somebody who'd spent all of my uh, my first 12 years in, 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 in industry and something totally different from music, I wasn't a musician, I came into it, it was just, um, it was all just wonderful, and I, I looked at it, well, yeah, this is, they're, they're doing the same thing, but uh, they're doing it a little differently, and it was just pure pleasure for me, and I, maybe, Statistically speaking, Don didn't get as much recognition as Bob did, but I think that um, it's, it's splitting hairs, really. Uh, there's incredible music made with um, both the work that Bob did and the work that Don did. I'd love to pick up on um, this uh, idea of listening to the consumer, listening to the user, because it seems to me that the legacy of Don Buchla and his instruments kind of starts with the with Tape Music Center and Sabotnik and, and Sender. Um, how do you all feel about that relationship with the users? How much does it does it inform what you design? How, how, how do you find that relationship to be with the user, with the musician, versus versus what you want to just make because? I am. Um... I operate in two modes. I have a personal agenda, and if I can do it on my own, I do. If I need a lot of help, I'll start a company around it. And for things that are uh, personal, I kind of design the whole thing first and then put it out for feedback. And then for products where I'm not as driven or not expert, as in a keyboard or a drum, I'll... Uh, come up with what I think are uh, interesting ways to solve a problem or create an instrument and bounce it around before I start building. So maybe 60% of what I do are passion projects and 40% are market driven. Uh, in my case, it's mostly been driven by what I want to play with myself and less about what everybody else wants. Uh, obviously, now with a you know a company selling a lot of products, you get a lot of feedback. But even now, when we design new instruments, we do it internally, and you know we're all of course synth heads, and kind of know what we want to do. So that's what we do, and we try to put a lot of personality into instruments, and you kind of hope that people like it. Uh, and because we do it that way, we could actually design things much faster than a bigger company that has to come up with a concept, run it by marketing, run it by sales. Uh, build a prototype, show it to a whole bunch of people, get a whole bunch of feedback, change it. And, you know, that's why a lot of instruments just 
end up losing focus because they try to be designed by committee instead of you know having a concept uh, and one central thing you're trying to do. So uh, I mean, even, even starting back with when I did the Prophet Five, that was I had bought a Mini Moog in 1972 or something, and so that's where I was coming from. So the Prophet Five sort of looks kind of like a polyphonic Mini Moog very roughly, as compared to a polyphonic ARP Odyssey or something like that. So, but again, it was driven by what I wanted to build because I thought it would be fun and cool and hopefully sound good. I don't really know that much about the tape studio. I know it historically, but um, yeah, I was playing rock and roll guitar at that point, so it was, I was in a different ball game. Um, but in relation to what Dave said, I think... Um, I would like to say that I, I do what, make the products I would like to make, but I'm invariably influenced by what uh, people who have my products say about them, because uh, they give me good ideas, and, and often I think it's just, um, there's a certain positive feedback that changes my mind on things. As I see, oh, that's really cool because of things I didn't realize, and so I end up being closer to what um, People tell me they'd like to have. I mean, within reason, there's certain things I won't make. I don't want to make a commodity product. First of all, I wouldn't make any money because everybody's already making it. I want to make something that is unique. But I think it's important for all of us to feel like we made some sort of a contribution to the world of musical instruments. And we, we all find our, 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 our place, uh, between that ideal and, um, the unfortunate fact that, um, uh, you can't do anything with, without making any money. You've got to try to reduce the cost and things like that, too. But I think, um, um, yeah, we're all doing that. We're all trying to change the world a little bit in our own ways. In my case, um, the thing that kept me in the business on and off for many years was the, the phenomenon of building something, something electronic with resistors and transistors, and um, maybe some lucky idea, lucky breaks, lucky ideas, um, and then it, it, it by itself is just a collection of electronic parts, but then it gets in the hands of a great musician, or an even not so great musician, and um, great music comes out. I mean, when I first did the... the um, Machines are the first polyphonic instruments you could buy in a music store that are really synthesizers. I don't count the polymog in that uh, group, but um, I just thought, well, you know, it, it's just four of my little modules in a crude controller, and um, then the next thing, uh, you know, there's uh, Birdland and and um, any number of other things, uh, Tom Sawyer, and it's like I never envisioned that this thing that I made would make this great music. And so as I look back and I said, well, I certainly didn't plan it. Some lucky, lucky experiments, I suppose. And uh, I, over the years, that's the thing that's just been so important to me. And um, when I just, whether it's listening to like I mentioned, silver apples or switch on Bach or whatever. It's not about who made it. It's not, it's a Don's, I don't think about it necessarily Don's machine or Bob's machine or Dave's machine or whatever. It's just, uh, I just am happy that um, 
this thing happened and then changed music. Yeah, like maybe let's stick on design for another moment. How do you feel that Don has maybe directly influenced, I mean, I know you both work closely with him, but, but all of you, his philosophies and personality influenced your designs directly or indirectly? I'd say something about that. Um, Don was one of the influences that uh, caused me to do more of the type of thing that Keith's doing, which is better human interfaces for musical expression. Don had uh, the thunder, which you mentioned, uh, this wonderful thing that responded to two different dimensions of your, your finger movement. And um, uh, our old friend Dave Wessel, who passed away about a year ago, um, used to use one uh, in very creative ways. And uh, it was marvelous to see the way things were going and how musicians <coughs> would, would learn to use this new thing that gave them more capabilities through uh, subtle movements of fingers. Uh, and that inspired me uh, to make the instrument, the product that I, I now make. What was interesting, too, is that uh, when Don made Thunder, uh, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to um, capture even greater movements, and he made this instrument called Lightning. Does anybody know the Lightning here? <clears throat> well, it was wonderful. It would basically allow you to hold a little uh, kind of a remote control and, and in front of a sensor he had, and it would sense your movements uh, of your hand of this little control in, in three dimensions of space. So you could map out this cube was a certain MIDI note, or this one was another MIDI note. Um, and people took this, and uh, uh, this, this wonderful paintbrush that Don created, people made wonderful paintings <coughs> out of. Um, and it just occurred to me, there was a, uh, a wonderful demonstration that he did when he released this, which was in 91, and he gave a concert at uh, the bicentennial concert, or the centennial concert of um, Stanford University in 91. And what he did is he had arranged all these percussion instruments on the stage, and I, who was playing them? Mark. Oh, okay. But it was marvelous what he had done. The audience was far enough away that they couldn't see that the performer wasn't actually hitting the percussive instruments, but in fact was just shaking his hand in a variety of carefully mapped out 3D spaces. There was a xylophone, there were some timbales and different drums. And so um, the performer started uh, playing this percussion piece, and then Don, after a few minutes, emerges from the side of the stage wearing a spy coat and a spy hat, and one at a time starts removing the instruments, and the guy's still playing, and you still hear exactly the same sound. <clears throat> and it was just a wonderful visual effect. I mean, this is for comic effect, but um, it just, I think, was a great uh, demonstration of how creative this instrument was and how it could be used in so many ways that people had not thought of before. And, and you know, I think for me, um, uh, it's like I was saying earlier, it, he made the brush and somebody painted paintings with it. And I think as uh, a maker of instruments, um, that's what I'm trying to do is I can't play the way I would like to play. I can't make the sort of music that I would like to hear. But the next best thing I can do is to make an instrument that perhaps enables a, a better, uh, more creative musician to be able to make the music that influences other people. And I think with, with uh, Lightning, he certainly did, and with his other products. I was trying to remember yesterday, was that the same concert the Leon Theremin was at? Okay, yeah. Yeah. That was a big, very cool. Um, I'd like to talk about design a little bit. So I think the first product that I did, um, the Little Boy Blue, was in some ways sort of a, an homage to Don and to his early designs. So I keep talking about the Buchla 100, uh, and that's because they had this three, you know, super module system at Harvard. 
And they also had these like hand-drawn schematics or copies of these hand-drawn schematics that I assumed Don had drawn. And I loved the um, how careful and yet not, I mean, it was all, you know, it was done freehand, so it wasn't even really with rulers. So it wasn't <laughs> perfectly straight. And I, I just love the aesthetic of that. And also that there were so many circuits that were just only transistors, you know, and because that was um, stuff that came directly out of working, I think, with the Tape Music Center. So it was the mid-60s. Um, so before, All you had were transistors back Yeah, then. no ICs yet. Yeah, they hadn't come in yet. And I had had this conversation with uh, Twig Harper one time from Nautical Almanac, and he said, I wish somebody would build a synthesizer just with transistors. You know, what would that be like? And that kind of lodged in my mind along with like having looked at Don's schematics, and I was like, I'm going to design something from scratch that's only transistors. <coughs> um, and so it was sort of like a, a constraint that I gave myself, but also I wanted to fulfill like two simple requirements, uh, one of which was I couldn't afford to buy a modular synthesizer at that point in my life. Uh, I don't think anyone could because the Eurorack thing hadn't come back, and the old stuff was just like insanely expensive. Um, and then number two, you had to be able to throw it on the ground uh, and it had to still work. That was very important to my sense of aesthetics. Um, just from having gone to so many shows, it was very important. And then the third thing, I guess, is, uh, and I didn't know Dawn when I was designing that instrument, but um, it was kind of like what you got was what you got. And it was a little bit um, rugged and gruff and maybe not like, it was definitely not a pretty sounding instrument. Uh, and so once I met Don, it, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, cool. This kind of like matches up. <laughs> Anybody else? Um, I did make one instrument in response to Don and Roger at one of our morning coffees, which happened the ungodly hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. The two of you were talking about tactile controllers. And... I'd already developed this smart fabric technology, and I remember thinking, well, it's not that hard. And I think in uh, response, I created the Cuneo, and it just seemed interesting to be able to have the good fortune and luck to come upon a certain set of skills that solve that problem. And I, I Don always uh, was a capacitive guy. All of his sensors were capacitive, and I, I've, I've always been a resistive guy. <laughs> well, I think another thing that's interesting about Bukla's designs is that they're, and I see this like in Little Boy Blue and, and Keith, your designs especially, is that they're really beautiful. Like, uh, if you approach a Bukla instrument, they can be super intimidating but they're beautiful. Look at them in the dark first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about how you all feel about that, that sort of moment, about like the, uh, how to get people to be attracted to a, a, an instrument that's potentially very daunting to the, to the musician and consumer, not the engineer. My design philosophy is if you make it small enough, it'll work and be beautiful. Uh, I, oh, sorry. I grew up reading um, old issues of popular electronics as a child, and so I always, for me, the best ideal was sort of like Tektronix test equipment from the 60s, which is very much like what Don's early instruments looked like, so that just seemed like the right place, and I didn't think about making things pretty. Well, we, we, I make different types of instruments, so it, for us, the 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 real tri trick to instrument design is knowing what to leave off, 
because as you all know, with any synthesizer, there's no end to the features. And probably many of you have asked us for many features that you wanted that we didn't put in. Uh, but if you put too much stuff in, then it becomes unwieldy and it's not as much of a musical instrument. It becomes more of a, a tool. Uh, and, you know, we try to go for the playability and get just the right set of knobs and controls. And yes, it does need to look cool. I mean, there's, there's got to be a look to it and it's got to invite you in as a musician to want to play with it and want to interact with it. So you don't want to be, you know, too scared away, but you want to have enough stuff there to keep you busy and have a lot of fun with. Because that, that's the other thing, it all gets down to having fun. If you're not smiling while you're playing your instrument, then something's wrong. Well, I try to, to uh, work as hard as I can on what's the best uh, man-machine interface. And um, it reminds me of when Book, uh, Don made this um, product a few years back called the Euclidean Rhythm Generator. And he thought very carefully about what the interface should be. Because you know, a musical uh, instrument should be something that um, you don't have to switch brains uh, to use. You can stay in that creative space and still use it. And, and uh, it shouldn't be too hard to figure out. And so he recognized that he was trying to do um, any rhythm, any number of counts um, per measure against any other number of counts per measure. He thought, how best to represent that? And he represented it by this, this uh, circular uh, um, arrangement of LEDs. And I remember he got very excited about it. He, he got, uh, went out and got himself a 3D printer. And he was complaining about, ah, this is crap, it doesn't work very well. But he was able to get it to work, and so he had made this circuit board and had to have, I think it was the outside was... 16, and then it was 15, 15, all the way down to three. So you could choose any number of divisions against any other one. And it was a very intuitive way of doing it. But he was also extraordinarily cheap. Uh, he recognized, I think he had, had so many experiences of, of uh, not having enough money to do things and not having the, the, the quantities, not being able to make the quantities that would make it cheaper to do things like molds uh, and such. And so what he did on this uh, Euclidean rhythm generator, he made this a 3D printed plastic piece that would um, shield the light from adjoining LEDs. And then he just took a, um, a cutout with the scissors, a round piece of uh, filter uh, thin plastic and stuck it on top. And that was it. And it looked great. I think it worked great too. Okay, we're, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but it, I don't want to get too dishy, but uh, I'd love to hear just like some, did Don ever propose something that was just too far out, even, even for him? When did his ideas just get a little bit beyond? During lightning phase, post-lightning, Don wanted to track dan dancers in real space, X, Y, and Z. And he came up with a design, uh, Fireflies. And it, Sorry, that was, it, Fireflies was the name of the... That's what he called it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you would put up sensors and create a field, and each of the dancers would have an emitter. And he could never quite get it to work right because of uh, intrusive fields from, you know, wiring, Life. radio. Yeah. So... Uh, I think that one was, he bit off more than he could chew. And that was pretty rare. What was that? Rain. The rain yeah, rain. Tell us about rain, somebody. Well, he had, well, had a long tube, and accelerometers were starting to become available. And before that, we all built our own 
And he loved the sound of a rain stick. And I think Amy designed the probabilistic uh, math behind these little seeds falling against different ledges. Yeah, but that never found fruition. I think he realized he had to build the sound source in. Anybody else remember something in particular that was? No? Yes, but there are two that are finished. Uh, some of these things were because he, uh, did, sorry, it's Joel on the balcony. Hi. <laughs> Yeah, everything is ready to go. Don treated programmers like Hitchcock treated actors. <laughs> they were cattle, and he would abuse them verbally in front of people and make them go back to their room, and he would occasionally slip a pizza under the door, and um, I think it was Stockholm Syndrome that got most products done. <laughs> I love that if you read about the history of Don Buchla as a person, there's so much diplomacy that everybody's <laughs> using that's falling apart right here, right now. Uh, well, I was going to say, mostly, um, this is terrible gossip, but I, I think it was the first time I came to work for Don, the first summer, he wanted me to write some, like, little, just one paragraph descriptions of some of the new modules he was selling. And he had one that did an algebraic function. And I was like, Don, this equation is wrong. This is the actual equation. And he got really mad. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> Though I was uh, told on good, uh, someone else confirmed that it was wrong. <clears throat> so maybe shall we open it up to questions? See what, would anybody like to ask a question? Yeah. yeah. I was wondering if you uh, had opinions about the division between uh, structure and material and the banana and mini jack structure that Don created versus the Euro racks, which are all minis, or like the surge that were all bananas, and whether or not you have any opinions about the logic or the utility and the functionality of that idea that you had. It's hard to say. I, I, I never got that far into the modular side. But to me, <clears throat> in a modular system, everything should be the same. There should be no difference between uh, audio and control, because you should be able to use audio as control and vice versa. So with the banana plug system, it seems like you kind of lose some of that. Um, but that's the only thing I could think of along those lines. This is something I actually have very strong feelings about, and I um, tried to argue about this with Don, and I was like, Don, why did you separate your controls and your audio? It's all the same thing. And I really couldn't understand why he did that, and he couldn't really explain it either. Um, 
except that with his gate signals, because they went from zero to 10, maybe those should be separate. But even then, a lot of amplifiers will make a really interesting sound if you hit it with a 10-volt DC pulse. So I thought that was still a good thing. Um, but actually, um, Dave, I am the opposite. I'm a very strong partisan towards bananas over the mini jacks. And the reason is simple. You can't stack mini jacks, the mini plugs. And I, I guess maybe someone's making stackable minis now. Yeah. But... Um, that was not available like 10 years ago. So back then it was like, no, definitely banana all the way until you get to the very final stage, which is a quarter inch out, or it could be XLR if you want. So do you mean bananas for everything though? Audio? Everything. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Except yeah, for that, the that's final That's the only thing I said. It should all be the same. I don't care yeah. if it's bananas or yeah. mini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I can just tell you what Don said about that, my memory, which is, you know, when we wanted to launch the 200 e right? We wanted to revisit the whole, the whole format. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, do you really need these two up? And he said, well, yes, because I like to have a lot of headroom in audio. I like to have, I like to have be able to put lots of gain in each stage and, and have it not clipping. And then on the control, just like a really different edge case parameters. Like you want things to saturate, and you want things to be linear from zero until they saturate, which is very you know, hard to do in a are everywhere. Actually, um, who do you all think is most closely carrying on Buchla's legacy? I mean, at the very beginning of the conversation, we talked about we introduced your Iraq, but who do you think is really sort of like pushing those ideas the most literally or spiritually? Peter Blatter. <laughs> well, well, are you talking about whatever preaching? And pushing the same ideas or either way, new ones, it, both. Well, I think that's the whole point of the Euro Iraq community is there are so many people doing so many things, and and it's well, I, like Roger was saying earlier, was that Super Booth last year? We went over to the uh, what's his name Schneider's shop, and we were just looking at the uh, we were looking at the the big systems there, and you realize this is all new stuff that looked like stuff Don did 50 years ago. Uh, we, ha we haven't talked about that whole side of things, how everything started analog, then it went through what I call the digital dark ages, and now we're back to analog again. But there's so many people, a lot of these companies are one or two or three people, and they make stuff that's Buchla-ish, and some things are direct copies sometimes, and sometimes it's not, but you could see the heritage there. But it's, it's all of the above, and that's the beauty of it, really, I think. Modules now have uh, microprocessors and DSPs in them. A so lot of the modules are digital now, and what's cool is people don't care. Yeah. So I, I just said digital dark ages and all that, but uh, that's talking more about uh, Rompler instruments and that sort of thing. But it's nice that it's people don't care if it's analog or digital anymore. It's just what it does, and does it sound cool, or does it do something fun, uh, which is the way it should be. I agree. I think the Eurorack phenomenon is, is very exciting, and um, uh, it, this Superbooth event in Berlin, Dave and I both exhibited a year ago, uh, and there was just another one, I guess, last week, yeah. but it's, it's just, um, 
it's a marvelous uh, feeling of the excitement of a movement, and not only among the, the attendees, but the, of course the makers as well. And everybody has his creative contribution to make, and no one's making any money, really. They're all just trying to make something that, that they think is beautiful. And, um, and I remember just walking around to the different tables where people were showing their wares, and the interactions between the, uh, the attendees and the makers were just wonderful because they were really on, on the same side, um, and they'd get ideas back and forth, and it was just a wonderful excitement. There was just another one I was at called Cinco 2 that was up in uh, Portland uh, a few weeks ago. Same sort of thing. And the nice thing about it, too, is it's very much kind of like when all our companies were young, we, sure, we, we were competitors, but it wasn't really so much about that. It was more about we were all part of this movement. And, uh, and of course, the industry grew, and there's a lot of bigger companies entering the fold. But the Eurorack community is really a community, and, and it's, um, it's something very beautiful, I think. It reminds me of uh, talking about trade shows. Superbooth was cool because it was a trade show, and every single person was a synth head. And it made it so much more fun and easy compared to uh, the NAM show, which I'm guessing most of you know about. But what was cool about NAM is every year at around 6 o'clock on almost every day, all of a sudden you turn around and Don was in your booth uh, <laughs> because we used to, well, we still do usually have Because you wanted the shot of tequila. Because we, we have tequila in the booth. Uh, and... Like clockwork, Don would always be there because every year we have a new commemorative shot glass that we give away for our swag, and so we'd have a little um, a little tequila. And then, strangely, a couple hours later, you go to dinner and you turn around and Don's there for dinner. Remember how often that would happen? But it was great to have him around, and he'd always have the same hat on. And uh, it, I was kind of surprised how often he did go. In fact, we shared a booth with him, right, one year? No, that was... You oh, that, shared a booth, and I think you Oh, and then the following, yeah. So one year, Don and I actually shared a booth. Uh, this was in the early, uh, probably 2003 or so. And I'm not sure why we did it. I think we shared a booth, and then you didn't come, so Don took the space. Uh, and that was quite an in interesting experiment. It's the first time I came in the morning of a NAMM show and saw balloons in my booth. Uh, I never did quite figure out why that was, but uh, it, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, Lead us to say we were kind of going in different directions, but uh, uh, it was just good times. One thing that just came to mind, uh, and this relates to Don's personality, um, is that um, once when we had this uh, breakfast club meeting, um, I think it was the fellow from uh, Mix Magazine came down and wanted to interview the whole uh, group of us, or somebody came down, and we were all sitting around a table and talking, and the guy was asking questions, and everyone was contributing to the conversation, and Don was, of course, being his silent self and not saying anything. But um, then after we all finished... He started talking to the interviewer, and he was talking for another 20, 30 minutes. And I think he was just more comfortable one-on-one -on -one, uh, than on, in speaking in front of people. And I think he, he put on his sort of Don Buchla, too. But, um, but the thing is, is when you get him alone, he would open up, and, and he was very, he would make a great contribution. I think it was just the nature of his personality. Maybe he was not comfortable in the spotlight or not comfortable in crowds. It's interesting, these breakfast club gatherings is really interesting uh like i feel like if you go back far enough in electronic music history like with i don't know grm or columbia princeton or bell labs or what, there's like infighting and excommunications and there's drama whereas like everybody's just so damn nice now everybody's so so friendly and warm 
Well, there's nothing new to fight about, which is really depressing. Um. <laughs> well, I, also, I think, um, so I got to attend a few of the Dead President's Society meetings, uh, which was very unofficial because I had just started my company at that time, but it was really helpful to me. Um, I remember talking, especially with you, Roger, about um, enclosures because of the enclosure you were using. I was using the same one. Um, but uh, I think at that point in his life, Don had really chilled out a lot. So uh, I'm because sh- I, I would hear stories about him being a lot feistier when he was younger. And um, in some ways, I'm sad I never got to witness that. But he was uh, definitely a lot more chill when I knew him, though he still got mad at me. <laughs> right here. Yeah, I, I think of Google as being really the master. Does that overlap with the performance last night in any way? Rosenblum? Yeah? Yeah. Oh, Rosenblum? Yeah. Last night? No. He's been doing that for a long time. Anybody? I think that computers and artificial intelligence are just uh, becoming viable. And um, you know, Don was always cutting edge. I think he was the first person to use a computer, a mini computer. Uh, to control um, analog modules. Max Matthews did that at Bell Labs, but I don't know if it was before or after. So yeah, I think Don would embrace it as soon as it would become practical. Question over here? Oh. You guys Um, I think that would be the next level. Is 
something like that goes that deep. The first digital computers, which were monsters, many of them had a feature where on a screen, like Fairlight with a light pen, or there's another one, Excel, and you could draw a time domain waveform. And that was really useless. <laughs> and, you know, EEG is similar, I think, until you can put an fMRI in a baseball cap, it's not going to go anywhere. I think maybe the last question right there. Yeah, I think, and I think this relates to, to this direction I think Don will love this discussion. I worked for Don in the mid-90s in the digital dark ages, well into the weather instruments phase. And I remember talking to him and saying that, you know, there are a lot of us that are interested in analog synthesis of the modular analog synthesis. And he scoffed. He said, you're not interested in the analog synthesis. You're interested in the control of the analog synthesis. And I think he had the feeling that it was obvious that digital could do anything, and it was just a matter of maybe a year or two that digital would do it. And then his controllers would have a sound engine that would back them up. But unfortunately, this was wrong for time, right? And I think, I think it's one of those observations that just really struck me at how far ahead of his time gone all these levels. Right? Digital wasn't ready, but it's just becoming ready to catch up with this certain tool like that. I wonder if you have any. I've never made an analog device in my life. <laughs> well, there, there have been, uh, during that time, or I forget when, you know, the virus and the Nord, and, you know, people were doing subtractive analog synthesis digitally, uh, and they had the knobs and controls, not maybe quite as many. So, you know, there were instruments that were doing just that, uh, i.e. digital implementation, but controls like an analog synth. Because, you know, the cool thing about subtractive synthesis is it has a really wide range of sounds and it's really easy to grok. I mean, you just, you know, everybody knows what a filter knob is going to sound like when you turn it. So, you know, there, it, it, there has to be something a little bit beyond that because now, of course, everybody is playing with real analog synths. Uh, like our synths are the same, it, you know, you could say they look like a virus because it's the same controls, they're both subtractive. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think people are uh, realizing there still is a difference. Uh, I think we all agree that someday digital will sound as good, but it's always going to be different. And in some ways it's sort of irrelevant because, you know, a virus sounds really good for what it is. It doesn't sound like a classical poly, analog polysynth, but it has a good sound to it. So... Does it really matter? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll make a comment on that. Um, someone once said that uh, if you have enough monkeys, enough typewriters, you can end up with uh, all of Shakespeare's works. And if you have enough computers and enough programmers, you can you can uh, sound like real analog. But uh, um, I don't think we'll be around for that. No, these. <laughs> Actually, this statement is, is demonstra demonstrably false. So when, when I was taking uh, thermal physics at Stanford, uh, you know, we used the Cattell textbook, which is kind of the standard, and he has that as an example. Someone once said, you know, if the monkeys had all this time, they could write the works. And the amount of time it would take was like billions and billions and billions and billions of times longer than the history of the universe. So it's just like, it's never going to happen. And in fact, that exercise is titled, the, you know, the probability of never. Um, so... They, but there is, especially I think in the digital world, there's always been this boundless optimism that like next year we're going to be able to do everything and it still hasn't come true. And I'm not a partisan in any way because actually I'm really, 
you know, I, I'm thinking as I listened to some of the discussion earlier about things Dawn was trying to do with controllers and tracking the dancers, that kind of stuff is, has come true, but not in the world of DIY synthesizers. It came true with like the Wii, you know, um, tracking you when you're dancing and doing those dance games. And so there's a lot of actually really magical stuff that can be done now, but it is way beyond the level of funding, I guess, that is going into instrument design. And that's a little frustrating um, to me anyway, because you think about, oh, okay, well, what you know, Microsoft can do with the Xbox and what some of these other companies can do. It's, it's really kind of incredible using their you know, IR laser arrays and, and um, checking the time of flight of each beam and everything. Um, and it would be amazing uh, as musicians or as artists to have more uh, ability to interact <coughs> with that stuff, but it's all closed source, uh, which is really frustrating. Um, but that's just sort of part of the reality of, of uh, where we're at technologically um, with electronics, because it's things are so much more advanced than you know 40 years ago when the ICs were coming out, and you could really do a lot on your desktop um, by yourself. And so I hope that there's uh, that you know I think the open source hardware uh, movement has been really helpful with that, and I hope that that continues to expand, uh, you know, or that people can find ways to sort of hack some of those consumer devices. And instruments open source. I'm of the opinion there will be no new uh, musical controllers. Um, there really has not been an instrument new that since like the banjo or the saxophone. Turntable. Pardon? The turntable. Okay. Because <laughs> there needs to be a repertoire and there needs to be teachers and it's it's like a chicken and egg problem and i'm of the belief that all the various ways we have to hold uh pluck bow blow finger are completely adequate for very subtle control and we have hundreds of thousands if not millions of people who are experts at using that format so i, I just don't think there's a need you're not saying there's nothing more uh, than just a MIDI keyboard because you make this keyboard pro. Right, but if you're a keyboard player, you can walk up to it and immediately play it. Anybody want to argue that one further? <laughs> uh, we could spend days on that. Yeah. yeah. Step outside. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks everybody. Thank you all for coming.